listening to the official podcast of Oasis Community Church, where everybody's welcome, nobody's perfect, and anything's possible. If you'd like to learn more about Oasis, request prayer, or get in touch with a pastor, visit our website at oasischurch.org. Enjoy the podcast. Good to see you on this first Sunday in Advent, and I want to begin today uh, today's talk by traveling back in time a few centuries. Uh, in the ancient times, there was a scriptural saying that expressed the sentiment of the common people in those days, people who were trying to raise families and build homes in the middle of a very violent and very war-torn society. And the phrase was this, someday we will beat our, plow- our swords into plowshares and our spears into pruning hooks. Uh, This verse actually comes out of Isaiah chapter 2, verse 4, and it expressed the hope that one day Israel would take up the sword no longer against other nations, that they would no longer train for war. Someday there would be peace. People in our day, we often imagine uh, and talk about weapons of mass destruction. But in those days, literally every weapon they had, they prayed, would be melted down eventually turned into a farm tool that they could somehow use to raise crops to serve the needy and to feed the hungry. They imagined a day when young men would not be ripped out of their mother's arms and sent off to battle in the king's wars, never in some cases to be heard from again. They imagined a war uh, or a world where war was no longer a part of their lives. Instead, there would only be peace. Additionally, in the ancient world, one of the most common sayings to greet someone when you saw them and passed them would be to say to them, Shalom. Most people think of that word as simply meaning peace, but it's really a lot richer than that. Shalom at its deepest meaning means, I wish that there would be no conflict in your life, and I wish that there would be a spirit of well-being and prosperity in your inner person, your soul. When mothers and fathers would tuck their children in at night, often it was the custom for them to say the last words to them, Shalom, my son, or Shalom, my daughter. And when societies really understand the conflicts of war, the horror of war, when people who have lived in it for decades and centuries, when they start thinking about peace, this word Shalom takes on a very rich and deeper meaning. And when you read the Bible, when you read Scripture, you learn that from Genesis to Revelation, one of the things is that God's preferred state is for his people to live in peace with one another and with themselves. Now, I bring this up because as we start Advent today, you're going to hear over the next few weeks a lot about peace. Christmas cards are going to greet you with things like peace on earth, goodwill to all men. Uh, Christmas carols, we're going to probably sing them here that say, sleep in heavenly peace. Christmas decorations, you're going to see even outside someone's home, the words Jesus, Prince of Peace. We're kind of saturated with that message, but here's the question I want to ask you. Is, Is your life, is your soul, is your heart, is your mind really at peace this morning? How about our world? Is our world at peace? There is a billion dollar industry in our world that seeks to create kind of this idolized expectation of Christmas. 
It's called the greeting card business. And unfortunately for us, this kind of cinematized and um, manufactured way of thinking about Christmas doesn't always tell the whole story. Sometimes we don't have hallmark moments at Christmas. Maybe for you, that's your story this year. Maybe things are a little messy. Maybe you could use some peace. Maybe you have pain today. Maybe you have some guilt or some debt or some divorce or bad choices or regrets. Maybe you're dealing with depression or loneliness. If that's the case, here's some good news. The peace that this world gives is kind of like a good mood that comes in pleasant circumstances. Like when things are going great, you feel pretty good, you feel peaceful. It's kind of like when you're on vacation and the weather is 75 degrees, which I think is the perfect temperature. And you drive your perfect Lexus to the perfect beach bungalow and the kids are perfectly behaved in the back seat and you look over at your spouse and they look perfect in their swimsuit. And that night the grilled mahi-mahi is perfect and then suddenly you realize this isn't your family at all. <laughs> you see, because your kids have colic and your spouse has major issues and your boss is a narcissist and your car has a broken transmission and your therapist is nowhere to be found. You see, where do you find peace in those kinds of moments? In fact, it's not even in dramatic moments like that. It's in kind of everyday moments. Traffic jams when you're in a hurry and obstinate co-workers you can't get along with and that snarky email you got from your mother-in-law and the flat tire on your car when you walked out that morning. The stupid fight about whose stupid turn it is to take out that stupid dog again. <laughs> what you need is peace. But peace is not based on pleasant circumstances, friends. What you need to know is that peace is like a byproduct of a solid spiritual foundation. So during this Advent season, we're going to discover kind of the foundation for peace. And there is a prayer that you just were introduced or reintroduced to called the serenity prayer. Serenity is another word for peace. And it's a prayer that has just been for decades kind of a spiritual tool, a little spiritual tool to help you kind of focus on the life that Jesus wants for you, especially when you feel overwhelmed. Now, you've all heard probably the short version of the prayer, but we just read the entire version. I'm going to read it quickly again as we put it on the screen. And it says this, God, grant me the serenity to accept the things I cannot change, courage to change the things I can, and the wisdom to know the difference. But there's more to it. It goes on to say, living one day at a time, enjoying one moment at a time, accepting hardship as the pathway to peace, taking as he did, the sinful world as it is, not as I would have it. Trusting that he will make all things right if I surrender to his will, that I may be reasonably happy in this life and supremely happy with him forever in the next. Amen. Starting next week, we're real excited about this. We're going to walk through the most well-known part of this prayer, the first three lines. Next week, we talk about grant me the serenity to accept the things I cannot change. But for today, I want us to start by focusing on a line in this prayer that says accepting hardship as the pathway to peace. This statement almost sounds counterintuitive. How in the world can hardship be a pathway to peace? Well, what I want us to do is kind of walk through a portion of the Christmas story. 
And I want us to see how certain characters in the Christmas story handled the pressure and the problems. And they had huge problems, believe me, in this story. Because what we're going to find out is just as Jesus showed up 2,000 years ago in a world that was in great conflict, he is going to possibly show up now. The Gospel of Matthew talks about this in the second chapter. And this is the way he begins, Matthew begins the, uh, the Christmas story. He says, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea, during the time of King Herod... Sometimes we read verses in the Bible and we just kind of skim over them. I want you to know that this wor- these words during the time of King Herod could be the most important words in Matthew chapter 2. It is not a calendar statement. It is not a historical statement. Jesus, Matthew says, is born in a time of huge trouble. Herod, as you probably know, had been given the title, a legal title called the King of the Jews. Ever heard that before? It was actually a very formal title. And Herod may be one of the most ambitious guys that you'll ever read about in Scripture. Herod was the kind of guy who would literally do anything to be king. Now, racially, he was an Arab. Religiously, he was Jewish. Culturally, he was Greek. But politically, he always sided with Rome. Why? Because his identity was wrapped up in power. This is a guy who was married to, some say, 10, some say 11 wives. He got suspicious of the only one, the one that he really loved. Her name was Miriam. So he had Miriam executed, had her mother executed, and had two of his own sons by Miriam executed. When his barber, his hairstylist, tried to stick up for his two sons, he just had the barber whacked. It's bad when you kill your barber, friends. He had all of his predecessors killed. He literally taxed Israel, the poor in Israel, into homelessness. Now, this is why there's so much rebellion in this day. He was the one who built the great temple in Jerusalem. You remember? He was known as Herod the Great, massive builder of cities. One time, he goes to the temple and he places in the temple a golden eagle. Now, that was a pagan symbol, obviously, that should not have been there. It was deeply offensive to Israel. So a group of people snuck in one night and they tore the eagle down. Herod is so miffed by this that he has all of them rounded up, has all of them executed, and the ones that he thought were the ringleaders, he literally had them burned alive. When he was on, get this now, when he was on his deathbed, he was in such despair that he tried to kill himself five days before he actually died. A guard stopped him from killing himself, and in the confusion of what had happened, there was a lot of confusion in the palace. One of his sons, the son that was going to be the heir to the throne, thought his dad was dead, so he went ahead and went to the throne and kind of assumed power. His dad got so mad about this because he wasn't dead yet that he had that son killed. Don't you want this guy over for Christmas? And then five days later, Herod died. Herod knew that when he died, that no one in Israel, no one, would be sad. So he left instructions in his will that scores of prominent Israelites were to be rounded up and executed on that day. Because when he died, he wanted there to be weeping in Israel. Joseph, the famous Roman historian, said, Herod never stopped avenging and punishing every person 
every one, those who chose to be a part of his enemy camp. This, friends, is the time when Jesus, the Messiah, is born. Not a great time to be born. Matthew continues, Magi from the east came to Jerusalem and asked, Where is the one who has been born king of the Jews? We saw a star in the east and have come to worship him. <laughs> when Herod heard this, he was disturbed and all Jerusalem with him. And now you know why. When Herod is disturbed, everybody is disturbed. Herod wants to make sure that this potential rival to the throne is removed because there can only be one king of the Jews. So he attempts to find out exactly where is this baby boy in Bethlehem born. When Herod realized that he had been outwitted by the Magi, he was furious. He's thwarted in his attempts. And he gave orders now to kill all the boys in Bethlehem and its vicinity who were two years old and under. Then what was said through the prophet Jeremiah was fulfilled. A voice is heard in Ramah, weeping in great mourning. Rachel weeping for her children and refusing to be comforted because they are no more. Now here's the deal. I grew up in church like some of you. We used to do these little corny Christmas pageants every year when I was a kid. They would all throw like a, a robe on us. They would give us a stick. They'd put a little thing on our head, make us look like, you know, whatever. And we'd get dressed up in these bathrobes and somebody would pretend to be Mary and somebody would be Joseph and probably the newest kid born would be Jesus. And we had shepherds and we had Magi and all this. Somehow, interestingly enough, this never made it into those stories. It became known as the slaughter of the innocents. It's an interesting phrase. When you think about the life and the death of Jesus... This is not how Christmas is kind of retold to us now. This is not how we think about Advent. But what I want you to know is when Jesus was born, all was not calm. All was not bright. That little baby did not sleep in heavenly peace. Let's look at this because there's some key contrast between the key figures in this story. First, an angel comes to Joseph. Joseph's life has been just turned upside down by this story. And God says to him, Joseph, get up and take the child and his mother and escape to Egypt, for Herod is going to search for the child to kill him. Now let's talk about Joseph's Christmas. For one thing, he's already lost the thing that he values most, and that is his reputation as a righteous man. He's having to marry a woman who everybody knows is pregnant. Now he's told, Joseph, listen, you're going to lose your home, you have to leave your job, you're going to have to leave your people, your country. You're going to take your wife and you're going to take this small child who is totally dependent on you and you guys get to live as refugees in another country. Interesting. They're refugees. Now if I was Joseph, I'd be thinking, hey, listen. I was told this child was going to be named Jesus, Yeshua, like Savior, because he's going to save people I mean, he can't even save his own family. Now, there is a reason that the Bible talks about this trouble of Joseph. And I think this is so that we can understand that when you have troubles and you will have troubles, if you have disappointment and you will have disappointment, if your life turns out differently than what you thought it was going to turn out, and it probably will, Jesus has come for you. 
Jesus is still up to something. God is still at work. Maybe in some very weird and strange ways. And then we hear from Mary, the little peasant girl. She's told by the angel she's going to give birth to the Messiah. And her words have been written down and recorded for all of history. Why? Because the words I'm about to read are some of the most subversive words in all of Scripture. Because it was thought in that day that if downtrodden people, if marginalized people, if hopeless people, which I think is just so interesting that this is going on in our day as well, if oppressed people ever heard these words, if they ever really figured out what God was up to, if they ever understood what this little peasant, teenage, illiterate little girl was saying, it might incite some of them to hope again. And you know what happens when people start hoping? <laughs> Something takes place. Here's the words of Mary. She says, My soul glorifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior, for he has been mindful of the humble state of his servant. From now on, all generations will call me blessed, for the Mighty One has done great things for me. Holy is his name. His mercy extends to those who fear him. From generation to generation, he has performed mighty deeds with his arm. Listen, he has scattered those who are proud in their inmost thoughts. He has brought down the rulers from their throne, but has lifted up the humble. He has filled the hungry with good things, but he has sent the rich away empty. He has helped his servant Israel, remembering to be merciful to Abraham and his descendants forever, just as he promised his ancestors. Now, if you think about it, in a crazy way, this is the first Christmas carol ever composed. She sings this. This is actually a song. And she says, let me tell you who the king is. And everybody goes, well, we know the king. The king is Herod. Remember, part of why the temple is so controversial is because Herod is the one who built it. It was called Herod's Temple, and it was built on the back of the port. Remember in Jesus' Gospels when he's talking to people, a lot of times he would tell these stories about landowners, people who own land, and sometimes they would go away, and then they would come back, and they would check with the servants to see what was going on. The reason that Jesus tells those stories is because that's exactly the kind of world he lived in. Oppressive landowners. The poor, people like Mary's family, exactly like Mary's family, they lost a lot of their land and they became homeless during this time. They became peasants. Meanwhile, little Mary, little meek and mild Mary over here, sings her song. He has scattered those who are proud in their inmost thoughts. Wow, I wonder who that could be. He has brought down rulers from their thrones. Hmm, I wonder who's on the throne today. He has sent the rich away empty. Hmm, anybody know any rich people? See, you don't see this on Hallmark cards, but what Mary is saying in a very real way is things are going to change. And people are saying to her, shh, Mary, be careful. You go around talking about stuff like kings getting dethroned and his money being taken away. And you have a little baby coming along and somebody's going to get mad and somebody could get killed. There were three people, I think, that really understood what was going on in the Christmas story. Three people knew just how subversive this little, little baby was going to be. One of them was the most powerful man in the country. His name was Herod. And the other two were powerless, penniless, illiterate Jewish couple named Mary and Joseph. 
To one of them, Jesus' coming was the very foundation of hope and fulfillment of peace. There's a little line from a little town of Bethlehem. Remember this line? The hopes and fears of all the years are what? Met in thee. See, all the hopes and fears are met in thee. The hopes of Mary and Joseph, the fears of Herod. To one, he's the foundation of hope. And to one, he is absolutely scared to death. So Herod does something that we can't even imagine in our day. He sends soldiers to Bethlehem. Into the homes of peasant families who are powerless to stop them. They break in and when they find a little infant boy, they take out a sword and they take his little life. And then they leave. We say, O little town of Bethlehem, how still we see thee lie. <laughs> no. Bethlehem wasn't still. Now, Matthew could have admitted this from the story. Matthew could have left this part out. But he doesn't. And some strange ways, he kind of underlines it and highlights it. Here's one of the ways he does it. He quotes from the prophet Jeremiah, you notice how sometimes it just seems like they stick scriptures in there out of nowhere. This is one of those times where he sticks this Old Testament scripture in. He says, then what was said through the prophet Jeremiah was fulfilled. A voice is heard in Ramah, weeping and great mourning. Rachel weeping for her children and refusing to be comforted because they are no more. What Jeremiah is referencing here is a lady by the name of Rachel. Wait, Rachel, back in Genesis, was the wife of Jacob. Remember? Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. Jacob had a wife named uh, Rachel. They lived way before Jeremiah. But her biological children didn't die. But what happens is Jacob buries her. And we're told that in the book of Genesis that Rachel is buried in the town of Bethlehem. And in Jeremiah's day, years later, the people of Israel are carried off into exile. They're going to be homeless. They're going to be refugees again. Many of them are going to lose their lives. And get this, they have to walk by on this road that leaves from Ramah. They have to pass by this little town called Bethlehem. And the rabbis said in Jeremiah's day that Rachel had been buried by Jacob in Bethlehem so that she could weep for the exiles who were passing by on their way to lose their homes. It's a very, very anguished verse. Rachel is a picture of Israel like a mother weeping for her children, refusing to be comforted. People say, it's okay, it's okay. And Rachel says, no, it's not okay. Their human heart says, no, I don't understand. Somebody needs to do something here. And Matthew is trying to say, listen, something is being done. It's just not what you expected. Now, why does... Matthew, tell us so much about the agony of Bethlehem. I think maybe one of the reasons is because if Jesus could enter a world where unthinkable evil, and let's be honest, taking a child's life is about as bad as it gets. And suffering takes place. And hurt takes place. Then maybe, then maybe in our world, a world that, listen, in the last century has seen two world wars. In the last hundred years has seen unspeakable genocides. 
unspeakable horrors. Maybe Jesus, if he could come into that kind of evil, maybe he could come into this world. Some of you know about loss this year. Let's be honest. Some of you do not look forward to Christmas at all. For some of you, there's going to be an empty chair around a table where there should not be an empty chair. For some of you, there's a broken heart over a broken relationship. For some of you, it is a child who has run far away from home or God. Listen, don't give up on experiencing peace. Because Jesus comes to Bethlehem in the time of King Herod. You know, sometimes devotional books get written that list all the titles and wonderful names about Jesus. And they say things like Emmanuel, Messiah, Son of Man, Son of God, the Lion of Judah, the Rose of Sharon. There's one title that you very rarely see in a devotional book. But Matthew mentions it over and over again in the story. He says things like, make a careful search for the child and the place where the child was. And then he says, they saw the child with his mother and take the child and escape to Egypt. So he got up and he took the child. And then he says, and go to the land of Israel. So he got up and he took the child. In the ancient world, they were not particularly sentimental about children. Did you know that the odds of a child even growing up in the ancient world were pretty, pretty high? To be a child was to be dependent and defenseless and fragile. And he's made utterly vulnerable. Jesus is God, exposed to all the evil in this world so that it might do its very worst to him. And his only response really is to suffer. So if you feel vulnerable, if you feel weak, this series is for you. This series is about serenity. This series is about feeling helpless. This series is what happens when you don't have enough strength on your own. We come to the end now of Matthew's wonderful yet dark story. Part of what Matthew wants us to know is that there is no trial, there is no expression of evil that just goes on forever and ever and ever. So in verse 19, listen now, Matthew says these words. In the next season of Jesus' life, we are introduced to this phrase, three words. Matthew says, after Herod died. Remember, it starts out during the time of King Herod, and now it ends with, after Herod died. It's funny, Herod is mentioned as dying three times in chapter 2 alone. Now, what is it you think Matthew wants us to know? It's not a trick question. Herod is dead. Okay. So he says it over and over and over. Now think about this. Herod could have been the one to welcome Jesus and proclaim him to the world. But he didn't do that. Herod chose another path because he wanted to be king. See, we kind of might have expected that. Herod said religiously he was Jewish. He was the builder of the temple. He was the defender of Israel. 
But yet it's actually, listen, these pagan, pagan guys called the Magi, astrologers from the east, who we would never expect in a million years, they're actually the ones that end up kneeling before Jesus and worshiping him. Herod hears about Jesus and he says, got to get rid of this dude. And Herod, with all of his wealth and all of his glory and all of his power and all of his throne, Herod, Matthew says, here it is, is dead. See, part of what Matthew is doing in this story is he says, which road are you going to choose? There's a pathway that will put you on your knees, but it will lead to peace. And there is a road that will put you on the throne, but it will lead to anxiety and fear and paranoia. Herod died. Now here's a question. Who else is going to die? Not a trick question. Everybody in this room. And Matthew's sending a little subtle message. He's saying, what time was Jesus born? He was born in Herod's time, but guess what? Herod's time ended when he died. I love this because at the beginning of the chapter, Matthew calls him three times King Herod, King Herod, King Herod. Then the Magi go, they give their gifts to Jesus, they bow in worship. It's like a coronation is taking place. Now they say, here's the real king, here's the real guy on the throne. And from that point on, get this, Matthew does not call Herod king one more time. There's a new king in town. And Herod is going to die. And what I'd like you to know this morning is that Jesus in this holiday season may not save you from your circumstances, but he will save you in them. He may not make your problems and troubles go away magically, but he will bring a sense of peace and understanding and serenity that will transcend this horrible world. But you have to choose which road you will go down. The Magi bowed and worshipped. King Herod bowed up and plotted. And on this first Sunday in Advent, we have the same choice. Do we have peace? Will he come again? Will he visit us again during this Advent season? We hope you were blessed by today's podcast. If you liked what you heard and want to support us, you can do so by subscribing wherever you listen to your podcasts. You can leave us a review on iTunes, and if you want to contribute to Oasis financially, you can go to oasischurch.org. May the Lord bless you and keep you, and may God's face shine upon you and give you peace. Amen. Amen.